you'd like to turn with me, we'll be in the book of Joshua today. I have a catchy title. It might offend some initially, but I hope you give me patience to see it to the end. So the title is, God is not on your side. Maybe some of you initially find some difficulty with that. Maybe others smile and chuckle knowing where I'm going. Or maybe having an idea. But the title nonetheless is, God is not on your side. And in the book of Joshua, you can start at the beginning if you'd like to. I'm going to do a a quick summary to make sure we're all uh, at the same page. At the end of Deuteronomy, we see that Israel is camped on the other side of the Jordan River, overlooking the Promised Land. We see Moses dies. He's not allowed to enter the Promised Land because of his sin. We are reminded that the children of Israel had walked for 40 years because near this very same location, they had messed up the first time. So 40 years later, they're brought back. Seemingly the same views, the same promise. The land flowing with milk and honey is about to be theirs. And Moses passes away, and the mantle, so to speak, falls to Joshua. And the Lord gives him some commands. Many of us have heard these a lot. I'll read a few, few verses and talk about them for a minute. In the first chapter it says, uh, verse 5, There shall not be any man able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so shall I be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Be strong and of good courage, for unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give to them. Only be strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe and do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper, whitherest thou goest. The book of the law shall not depart out of the mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe and do according to all that is written therein. Now there's this phrase that comes next. In my Bible it says, For there... No, it says, For thou Basically saying, here's what I'm telling you to do, and here's the outcome. For thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and thou shalt have good success. Have I not commanded thee, be strong and of good courage, and be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee, whitherest thou goest. Tells him three times, be strong and of good courage. Tells him three times in three Uh, small but different ways. Strong, we understand very well. Looked up what that word is in Hebrew, and it says uh, to strengthen, to prevail, to harden, to be strong, to become strong. It includes to be courageous, to be firm, to grow in firmness, to be resolute. If you continue reading, it also talks about being sober-minded, I mean, a serious nature. 
Well, courageous also means to be strong, to be brave, to be bold, to be determined, to make oneself alert, to strengthen oneself, and to persist in something. And while these two words have two distinct different meanings, they coalesce together to give us an idea of what the Lord is telling Joshua to do. And he gives him specific instructions. It says, turn not from the law, neither left nor right, but stay focused on what he's told you. He also tells him to meditate on it day and night. We see this actually repeatedly throughout the scriptures. We see that we are commanded to meditate on the law of God, that we are to have it on our lips at all times. And we see even in the books before this, in the Pentateuch, we see that they are commanded to write it above their mantle place and on the doorposts and to have it on their foreheads so that they would always remember the things of the Lord. Now, it's not just simply remembering what God has told you, it's actually doing those things. And that is expressed here clearly as well. It's not just that you remember it, but that you actually do according to all that is written. It seems to be the hard part sometimes for us, isn't it? Sometimes it's easy to remember, although it's not always easy to meditate day and night, but the doing can be the hard part. And he basically says in another translation, only when you do all this will I bless you. Why? Because he's doing what God told him to do. Obedience. It's very important. Strong and courageous. He goes on and he reminds the people over the next few chapters of God's goodness. Joshua does. He reminds the people how they have wandered through the desert and why. How he has taken care of them. We see beginning in chapter 2 and 3 that he sends spies into the land. And this time they came back with a good report. They learned their lesson, didn't they? See, last time they came back and all but Joshua and Caleb said, oh no, it's too great. This time the spies come back and say, we got this. This is ours. Despite the towering walls which we talked about in Sunday school, and we've even referenced this story. They said, it's okay, God is with us. God told Joshua what to do. He readies the people. He rallies them and they finally cross the Jordan River. The thing that they have been waiting to do for 40 years. And even longer than that, the promise of the Lord told them that they would have this land. Going all the way back to the very beginning, when we see Abraham was told. So they've been waiting and longing. I tried to imagine if it had been my father who had made such a grievous mistake, and because of him I had to be raised wandering around for 40 years. I think I'd be ready. I'd be ready to enter into the promised land. I would be ready to go. And what we see here is an entirely different people, which is what the Lord said would happen. Not only, I think, physically, clearly everyone who was old enough to know better was gone, but their hearts were different. This time they were doing the right thing when they came. God gave Joshua instruction. Joshua gave instruction to the people, and they obeyed. They took up the ark. They walked into the water, and it stopped. And they went across. And when they went across, they were thankful for what the Lord had given them. They set up two memorials, one in the river where they stopped and one outside of it. And it says so that they would always be able to remember and point back when their children said, why is that there? And they could say, this is what the Lord did. I heard a wonderful sermon 
one time talking about memorials and how they are important and how we should erect them ourselves in our lives at times when God has given us great things so that we can look back and say, that's why that's there. This is where God worked in my life. An amazing thing. So they crossed the river. They set up memorials. They renewed circumcision. They hadn't done that. They'd stopped when they were wandering. So in order to be ready, they renewed their circumcision. Now we think of this today, and we think about what Paul talked about, about having a circumcised heart and following the Lord. But they began to do that as well. They also, in chapter 5, began to observe the Passover again. And if you read, what it says is, from that day forward, they no longer ate manna. Forty years of whatever it was. And I've heard people talk about what they think it was. But they finally get to eat real food. And not new food that they took, or that they planted. It's all what God gave them already in the land. They went into the land, it was ready for them, and they were successfully obeying the Lord, and He blessed them with food, finally. Something besides manna that they complained so heartily about for so many years. As I mentioned, Israel had been here before. If you go back and read in Numbers, we see where they fell away and were banished to the wilderness. So that brings me to chapter 5. And I want to start uh, with verse 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or our adversaries? And he said, Nay, but as the captain of the host of the Lord, I now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy sandals from off thy foot, for the place whereupon thou standeth is holy. And Joshua did so. Now I think clearly there is more to this account, but where this chapter break is inserted is proper because here we see afterwards that they begin their seemingly foolish assault on Jericho where they just walk around and around. Now we know it was what the Lord we know it was what the Lord had commanded them to do. I say seemingly foolish in our own minds. And I want to talk about this for a minute. I want to look here. No doubt Joshua had been in close communication with the Lord many, many years. He was one who was correct forty years before, had remained faithful during this journey, was chosen by the Lord to take up the leadership position of Israel to lead them into the land. He was no doubt a fierce warrior because he led them in battle and all of these things. But this is the first time that we know of that he meets the Lord. And I don't mean necessarily in a spiritual salvation sense. I mean he, I think, physically saw our Lord. Now, why is this different? And we can debate this, and that's fine. You may think that I am incorrect. But if you look at this, many times we see when an angel appeared and people tried to worship it, what did it tell them to do? Get up. This person let him worship. Amen. 
I believe that this was Christ, the captain of the Lord's army. Now, why was Joshua even there? Again, they've crossed, they're camping, they're waiting for instructions. He goes off a little ways, seemingly by himself. It says it, it, it seems to indicate that he can see the city of Jericho. Maybe he is there, I don't know, in my mind on a hilltop such as his house, looking over at the great city, pondering what he is to do next, waiting for a message from the Lord. And then it says something interesting. It says, and he lifted up his eyes. Now why would he have to lift his eyes up? Maybe, and this is conjecture, maybe he was already on his face seeking the Lord. Maybe he was already down in a posture of prayer and of worship seeking for the Lord to show him what to do. And I thought about the times that the Lord has appeared more strongly to me. Now, not, never physically like this, but the times when I was saved, I was down on my knees. The times during my life when I struggled the most with my call to preaching, I was on my face. Other times when I have been more close to the Lord, it's been exactly like this. I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. And I felt the presence of the Lord. He was doing what He was supposed to be doing. He was right where He was supposed to be. He was waiting for the Lord. And this time, I think physically, the Lord showed up. So he lifted his eyes and he looked and there stood a man against him with his sword drawn. Now I think we lose the context of what this means in our lives today. The only thing I can compare it to is what I know. As many of you know, I was a police officer for years. And I would go to a call to help another officer, and many times I knew not the circumstances when I arrived. But if I arrived and the other officer had his gun out, drawn as it were, it was serious. I didn't have to know what was going on. I pulled mine out too. It would have been no difference in that day with the sword, which would generally be sheathed and put away. The sword out, the weapon out says, it is time to fight. And I have no doubt that that was lost, not lost on Joshua. He knew. When he saw the sword lifted high, we see other accounts of our Lord who has a sword. The terrible swift sword, one song says. So he saw the sword. And this is where we see and we know that Joshua was doing what the Lord told him to do because he walked up to that person and he said, are you with me or against me? That is the example of the first chapter I read, strong and courageous. He's ready to go. All right, you're with me? Let's go. If not, bring it on. What boldness, what strength, what courage. It was exactly what the Lord had told him three times to do and to be, is to be strong and courageous. And he walks up with such boldness that he says, you're with me or against me? And then the reply that is the title. Are you with us or against us? And the King James, and it says, and he say, Nay, but as a captain of the Most High Lord, am I now come? 
In another version, it says, another translation says, neither one. And that's what caught me. This is the captain of the Lord of the heavenly host, who I believe, based on the circumstances, is likely Jesus incarnate for a short time on this earth so that he can be physically seen with the sword drawn, showing the way to go. And he says, neither. These are God's people. These are the ones who He brought out, who He took care of for 40 years, who He fed on a daily basis, whose clothes never wore out. God's not for them. Another translation says similar. It says, Neither, He answered, I have come as a commander of the Lord's army. God is not on our side. We can choose to be on His. It's the only side there is. Now, there's lots of times in the Scripture when it talks about the Lord being with them. And that can be true. If you're doing what the Lord wants you to do, He will be with you. But it's not like you wake up one day and you choose sides or you hope God is on our side. It doesn't work that way. Right. Joshua fell to the ground and was ordered to take his shoes off. If that sounds familiar, his predecessor was told the same thing. Amen. How often do we consider whether God is on our side throughout history? Is this not a question that's asked often? Especially, and I'll try very hard not to get overly political today, but especially in our country today, do we not just proudly proclaim we're taking freedom to all the countries and God is therefore on our side? Let me read a few things. There's some interesting books out there called, I think one of them is entitled, Why We Fought. And it's an evaluation of letters written by Civil War soldiers on both sides writing back home telling them why they're fighting. Now we can listen to all the generals that we want to. We can listen to the President of the North and the President of the South for what they say about why they're doing their actions. But when you stand in a line and have your best friend killed in front of you, when you are laid up having had your leg cut off because you've been shot, when you are in a battle against your earthly brother, what you think about why you're there matters. And what you see in both sides thought God was on their side. Both sides. They were doing the work of the Lord. Now you can decide which side is more culpable than the other. They're both wrong to some degree and in different ways. The point I'm trying to make is we can't look at history and say God was on the side of the north or the south. That's the wrong attitude to have. God is not on our side. Now, as much as I hate to do this, and this is probably another lesson for another day, I don't hold this quote this man in great esteem for a variety of reasons. But Abraham Lincoln was asked, supposedly one time, if God was on his side. And his response is, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side, 
My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. Is that the correct answer? Yes. That is the correct answer. Now to continue with the theme for just a minute, I want to talk about our world wars. Now the first one is Christians fighting Christians. Now we may disagree with the actions of some people, And we may stand here today and believe that maybe they weren't really true Christians or whatever. But the reality is, Christian nation, Christian nation. Now, on Christmas Eve in 1914, trench warfare. Many of you have heard this story. I'm going to be very brief on it. There was a couple of days truce. Do you know why? Because the soldiers refused to fight each other. And this is what happened. Uh, Graham Williams of the 5th London Rifle Brigade described the event in detail, saying, First, the Germans would sing one of their carols. And then we would sing one of ours. Now, I've read about this in much more detail. But imagine you can't imagine. I can't imagine what literal hell they were in. In the trenches, dirty, wet, their flesh rotting off because of the circumstances. You couldn't go out to bury your dead. So they rotted next to you. It had been going on for months and months and months. And here on Christmas Eve, in the midst of this, the battle is stopped there at a stalemate. And what does someone hear but singing from the other side? And what are they singing? A hymn. Different language. Many of them were different hymns. And this is what they're talking about. They sang one. And what did our boys do? They sang one back. And then the other side sang one. And then we sang one back. And it says, until when we all started up, O come all ye faithful. The Germans immediately joined in singing the same hymn to the Latin words. But they knew the tune. You can tell the difference. You can tell that it was the same song. And I thought, well, this is really a most extraordinary thing. Two nations, both singing the same carol in the middle of war. Another British soldier, Murdoch Wood, speaking in 1930 about the event that had happened years before, said, I then came to the conclusion that I have held very firm sense that if we had just been left to ourselves, there would never be another shot fired. Amen. I've read more about this. The commanders and generals freaked out because the line level officers and those who were just generally expendable because they're not important, realized when they came out of their trenches and met in the middle, they're just like me. They don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. This is foolishness. We're fighting for people who don't care about us, who mow us down. And for a brief time in this war, we realized that God was not on His side. Now we look back based on what we think about what happened in World War II and we feel like we have a righteous indignation 
to hate the Germans for what they did, do we not? And we apply that to World War I retroactively. But the truth of the matter is, I don't think God was on a side. Amen. And for a brief moment, on a select, desolate, horrible place, they knew it too. What about this? I've seen this online. Especially around election time. Jesus would have been a Republican. (laughs) Or maybe you've seen and been upset Jesus would have been a Democrat. Or one of my favorite ones, Jesus was a socialist. (laughs) Now, for all my peace-loving brothers and sisters out there, what did I just say that the Lord appeared to Joshua and had in His hand? A sword. God's not on a political side. There is not a party that owns the Lord. There is not a party that is on the right side of God or the wrong side of God. God is above all of this mess that we want to get involved in. But we like to hold one in high esteem, don't we? We like to pick one that we say God's on our side because I'm right and I'm over here. It's the wrong measure. What about divorces? Everybody here has been touched by it some way. Let's not fool ourselves. And if you're honest with yourselves, in almost every single situation when there is a divorce, there's not one party that's completely at fault. God's not on one side or the other. God's standard is pure and holy. And no doubt, because we are all people, both sides have broken God's standard. While we must and do make decisions about who we support more than others, maybe it's our family, we must realize it's not about God on one side or the other. What about our churches? We're very, very quick amongst our ranks to criticize other churches, other denominations, and other specific groups of bodies who have the same name that we do. What about ourselves? Do we just assume that God is on our side? Of course we do. I don't think many of us would be here if we didn't think God was on our side. But again, it's the wrong question. Are we on God's side? Are we doing what He wants us to do? Or are we creating something and then pretending like God's blessing us? This is our side. If we ask the question the wrong way, we are beguiled by the response. So here's the example. Here's the example. How could God not be, and we talked about Sunday school with the Billy Graham crusade, did you see how many people came forward? How could that be wrong? Because you've asked the wrong question. You haven't asked whether or not they're on God's side. We like to take everything that's positive, everything that's good, and say, well, that must be where God's working. That isn't always the case. And if you don't believe me, then all we have to do is flip forward just a couple of chapters and one person, Achan, disobeys the Lord and what happens in the next battle that they fight? They lose very bad. A couple more examples and I'll feel like I've explained this enough. But You know, an inheritance isn't always a blessing. I mean a monetary one. 
How many people have won a lottery and commit suicide? It's really high. Or have won and go bankrupt within a few years. Why is it we always make decisions? I remember my dad telling me this when I was young and looking to choose a college. He said, how come is it always when you go to church and everyone talks about where they're going to go to college that they say, well, I'm going to go here and they weren't sure until they got a full ride scholarship and then suddenly that's where the Lord wants them to go. My dad, being very cynical but still very wise, asked me one day, he said, how is it that most preachers, when they go from church to church to church, always seem to go to the next one that gives them a pay raise? Amen. We cannot assume that because we think good things are happening to us, that we're on the right side. Amen. Amen. And we do that all the time. I do it. I struggle with it. I think, well, this has been really good. It must be what the Lord wanted. Maybe not. What are we encouraged? They're talking about fighting battles. 2 Corinthians 20 and 15 and through 18, I believe, and it says, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus say the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jerul. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid, do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. All too often, we not only think we have to choose sides, we think we actually have to fight. It's God's battle. If we're on His side, we win. Even if that looks like defeat in our physical world, we still win. That's really hard for us to do. Why is that hard for us in our society? Because we win at everything. Look around. We talked before about Africa. Look at what we have compared to them. Look at our military. We're concerned because of North Korea. Are you serious? It's a joke. We win at everything, so we don't think we need the Lord. Or worse, we think we're on God's side because we have it good. What about the people who lived across the Jordan before the Israelites showed up? One of the most fertile places in all the world. It had been prepared for the Israelites. The Lord talks about you'll go in and you'll take over fruit trees pre-already grown. You'll take over fields already cleared and plowed. Don't you think they might have thought they were on the Lord's side because they had it so good? But they weren't. We don't need to fight. We don't need to be dismayed. And we don't need to be afraid. If we are on His side. But the point of all this is, When I say that God is not on our side, we need to make sure that we're on His side. How do we do that? Well, Joshua's a good example. What did Joshua do? He was bold and courageous. Not in his own strength, but in the Lord. I have no doubt he did what the Lord told him to do. He read and meditated day and night on the words of the Lord. 
He implemented the new laws. He saw that they had a Passover. He saw that they had a circumcision. He saw that they had monuments to the Lord to have a memorial to see what the good things the Lord has done. And in seeking the face of the Lord, where did he find himself? Not with God on his side, but he found himself on God's side. It's not semantics. It's not just words. There is a difference. And that's what I hope to express today. That it matters whether we try and form our own little world and say God's on our side or whether we truly seek the side of the Lord. As we see in Matthew, it says, Anyone who is not with me is against me. And anyone who does not gather with me scatters. It's not a partial thing. You can't be partially on God's side. You're with Him or you are working actively against Him. Amen. Now, who in here wants to work against God? Mm-hmm. Nobody. But will we make decisions today that actively work against Him? Yeah. yeah. Is that our encouragement to do better? Yeah. Because if we sit back and just lazily think that God's on our side... We've asked ourselves the wrong question and we've erred. Now, I want to say, and this is very important, I said that God's not on your side. If you've not had a one-on-one experience with the Lord, you're clearly not on His side. If you've not been saved, if you don't know what we talk about when we say that word, then that last verse applies. Anyone who is not with me is against me. And anyone who is not gathered with me scatters. So the logic would tell us, we know we shouldn't be against God. And we want to be on His side. The very first time we do that is when we confess Him. When we have that experience with Him. When we finally receive the gift of salvation then we begin to be on His side. Not God with me on my side, but with God on His side. If you haven't experienced that, then the Bible tells me you're not only not with God on His side, you're actively working against Him. I just asked, who wants to do that? None of us say yes. This is what tripped me up when I was young. Right? I remember being 10, 11, 9, 8 years old, however old I was. I remember hearing the preacher say, well, who wants to go to heaven? Everyone wants to go to heaven. Am I wrong? No. Who wants to be against God? Well, nobody says yes. Even the heathens wouldn't say that. Very, very few people would actually stand up and say, if they believe in any God at all, that they want to be on the wrong side. But the Bible tells us that if you haven't begun, if you don't have an experience, a relationship with God, then you are not only on the wrong side, you are fighting against Him. And if you've hung around us any amount of time, if you've read any amount of Scripture that the Lord has revealed to your heart its true meaning, you know what happens in the end. You lose. Because you are on the wrong side. So I challenge you today, are you on the right side? Are you on God's side spiritually? I don't want to make this too trivial, but have you changed teams? 
Maybe that helps you understand what I'm talking about. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, are you seeking his side or are you trying to get him to be on yours? I always laugh every time I watch a Super Bowl or a football game. No matter which team it is, somebody scores a touchdown. And of course now the proper thing to do is either do the sign of the cross or to point, not because they're number one, but they're pointing to God and thank you for this touchdown. Well, what about the other team? God doesn't pick sides like that. Amen. Are you on His side? Or are you just assuming we're going to get caught someday? Next time a war comes along, who's on whose side? Because it's coming. We all know that. We feel it. Do we not? A physical war, a worldly war, not a spiritual one necessarily. We're already in a spiritual war. Are you on God's side? Because he's not on yours. If the king, the army, can say, I'm not with Joshua or against you, I'm here to represent the Lord, how much more should we say to? So we'll close with that.